Sam and Kim talking to you about politics. Isn't it going to be informed? Um... <laughs> Hello, you are listening to Great Culture, the podcast where we talk about wine, pop culture and feminism. I'm Kim. I'm Sam. And we hope you enjoy the show. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about women in politics, what the world thinks of female politicians and political activists, uh, what our own perceptions are, whether we think those are changing, and all that kind of fun, fun, not at all dry stuff. But before... (laughs) (laughs) Shit! Say it like you mean it, (laughs) I'm trying. It's just hard to make politics sound fun. I loved it. I thought it was okay. great. All right. Well, we use that then. <laughs> um, but before we start delving into the world of Thatchers and Clintons, um, we have some wine to talk about. So, Kim, why don't you tell us what we have today and why you chose it? So we have a couple of wines today. Um, I'm going to tell you about one for now, which is the Catoria Cabernet Sauvignon by Carmen Stevens. The reason that I chose this one is actually because I got an email shortly after we decided to talk about this today. I got an email from Naked Wines, who I purchase wine from occasionally. Mm -hmm. And it was telling me that this wine was available. And the winemaker, Carmen Stevens, was announced as winemaker of the decade. She's won lots and lots of awards, but also she focuses quite a lot of her energy on charity and activism around um, specifically her initiative to feed thousands of hungry school children um, in the South African community. And she has won um, an award that, which is the 1659 Medal of Honour for Visionary Leadership, which was created to honour ambassadors for the South African wine industry who have made a positive contribution to people's lives, Hmm. encouraging, inspiring and empowering others. And also someone who won this was Nelson Mandela. Okay. Obviously kind of a famous dude. Kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, and so I thought that it was quite an appropriate wine because it was, you know, a, a leading woman in uh, winemaking who also happens to be politically active and nice. um, winning a lot of awards. So that's why I chose this wine. But I did also have another wine that I wanted to shout out. And the reason that I want to shout out this upcoming wine is because it is the first black owned champagne brand to be sold in the UK. Nice. And the reason that I, th- I know it's pretty cool. Yeah. And the reason I think that's so important is I did quite a bit of research around politics and wine and the wine industry, much like the political industry is very white man centric. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I read a lot of links about champion black owned businesses and female owned businesses yeah. in and um, wine entrepreneurs and people in the wine industry, not necessarily winemakers, but you know, people in marketing or people in sales. And I was trying to find black owned wines that were available in the UK. It's quite hard to do because there aren't that many vineyards in the UK. Most of the black owned vineyards in the world are actually in, in America mm-hmm. They are small vineyards that don't have the international sort of trade clout. But this one is, was created by a company that is spearheaded by a black woman that has headquarters in London and UK. So um, Nicole Johnson is the CEO of Rusty Rabbit International and Rusty Rabbit uh, Drinks Division created the Lapin Rouge Champagne. It's the first release of Rusty Rabbit Drinks. It is the first black owned champagne brand sold in the UK. I thought that it was really cool. 
it's a bit out of our price range. It's about £45 a bottle, mm. I think, which is a bit much for us and certainly a bit much for us for a champagne on a random Tuesday. Especially considering we do this podcast for free. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, but I do think that it is worth people sort of knowing about it. I thought it was really, really cool. I was amazed that it was the first one to be available mm. in the UK. Like, for champagne, which is a luxury thing, so you'd expect them to have a little bit more reach, I suppose. Yeah. I was quite surprised by that. So, yeah, big shout out to Rusty Rabbit Drinks, Rusty Rabbit International, Nicole Johnson and Lapin Rouge Champagne. But I thought that that was worth mentioning and I will include a link to the article that I read around, one of the articles that I read about Nicole Johnson in the show notes. Nice. Well, maybe in the future, if we start delving into the world of grape culture merch and make a little bit of money, we can get that on the podcast in the future. Maybe. Mm, yes. Maybe. That would be nice. Or if we're just feeling, you know, flush on a Tuesday. <laughs> yes, if we ever do feel like we've got champagne on a Tuesday money, then uh, champagne we'll let you know. But so anyway, for now, um, I've gone with the Catoria Cabernet Sauvignon, as I said. The tasting notes for this are a smooth red wine, which is a big, powerful creation showcasing the structure, richness, tannin and diverse aromas of Cab, Sa- Cab as a variety. On tasting this wine, the one quality that stands out like a pole above water is the depth of flavour. It fills out the palate and gives the wine the layered effect that lingers long after you had this wine in your mouth. The fruit is mixed with a good dollop of ripe oak and just enough freshness to bring all together in an incredibly happy medium. Well, who doesn't have a dollop in their wine? Yes. I don't know how I feel about the word dollop, um, but there we go. Nice. Okay. Well, it sounds like a good match for the show. Um, I'm always a bit sceptical of uh, South African reds, so I'm going to be interested to see how this one goes. Normally I like a South African red, but... Who knows? Cheers. Cheers. Crayons. It's always my red tasting note for quite a lot of South African and Portuguese red and I'm getting crayons again. That's top notes of crayon. Top notes of crayon, yeah. There is a waxiness to it, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not full crayon. (laughs) No. We're not talking 36 box Crayola here, we're talking like... No, it's just like a hint of it. Um, We are letting it breathe for a little bit, so maybe it will soften. I do think it is quite smooth, and Hmm. um, I was concerned that it was going to be quite um, bitter. Yeah. And I don't get that. I think... It's it's, not buttery, but it's not... It's not buttery, but it's not far off buttery. Mm. I quite like it, I have to say. Okay. It's not the worst I've ever had. That's all I can say at this point. I'm hoping it's going to grow on me as the episode yeah, goes on. It's, um, I'm reserving judgment because I think it's the kind of wine that I might make a judgment on based on how much I enjoy it versus money. Whereas sometimes I make a judgment without having to consider the money because I like it so much. Fair enough. Uh, yes. Whereas this is one where I might take that into consideration. Because it but, was a bit um, more expensive. Complex. Yes. Much like politics. Much like politics. So, what a lovely segue. Well done, Kimberly. Um, but speaking of politics, obviously that is the topic of our show tonight, and specifically women in the political sphere. We chose to talk about this uh, when we were drunk. What a surprise. Um, but <laughs> the reason that we decided to talk about it was that we wanted to address the fact that female leadership in politics uh, is becoming more more widespread than it has been previously if you don't count things like if we're talking about democratically elected leaders rather than monarchy anyway Mm -hmm. and we wanted to talk about the perceptions of women versus male politicians and obviously also within that there's the consideration of trans women um 
and LGBTQ plus women and women of colour and all of that and how that is changing within the political sphere or whether it is actually changing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and also this came about because we were just moaning about um, our white men running everything. So yeah. <laughs> here yeah. we are. Or politely, the political turmoil that we find ourselves in in the Western world. Yeah, yeah. and obviously... AKA white men be fucking shit up. Old white men fucking shit Specifically up. old white men. Specifically old, yeah. straight, white, cis, able-bodied men. Mm-hmm. But we... Also want to point out as well that, <laughs> as with many things that we talk about on this podcast, we are not experts. We are two nope. women drinking wine and chatting shit. So there will be things that we don't know. There will probably be things that we get wrong. Mm-hmm. And if that is the case, then we're more than open to being corrected. But we have done some research around this topic and hopefully enough to hold an interesting conversation while we get a little bit merry on this wine. So that is where we stand. Also to say that our opinions are our opinions. We're not going to try and push anyone into a political yeah. leaning um, that you do or do not hold. I think it it will come as no surprise that we are left leaning mm-hmm. on this feminist podcast. I know what the fuck are it's you a saying? shock. Yeah, but we may have some strong opinions about certain political parties, but that doesn't mean that we expect or wish to pressure anyone's political leanings. And also, yeah, our lefty liberal nonsense comes from a position of privilege, exactly, which, which we're very aware about. So with that, with, you know, heavy caveats, we will crack on with the discussion. I feel like that's the tasting notes with our podcast. With heavy caveats. With heavy caveats. (laughs) And a strong dose of bullshitting. (laughs) So let's get into it then. We've got a few areas that we want to cover. But first of all, I want to ask you, Kim, when people talk about women in politics... What do you think of? Do you think of a certain stereotype? Do you think of a certain woman? Do you think of a certain government? Do you like how? What is the first initial gut reaction for you? The first thing I thought of was pantsuits, <laughs> <laughs> which is the most vapid and blonde thing I will ever say. No, not at all. Because obviously, sorry, continue, and then I will. No, no, no. Right. Like to be fair, I was I was saying something wrong because I was saying it's the most vapid and blonde thing I'll ever say, and I've definitely said worse. <laughs> Um, so here we go that is the first thing was pantsuit but then I was like there's a stereotype there which is obviously the you have to dress like a man woman who's slightly butch but then I was like but also I thought about Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez who has worn some of the most fantastically gorgeous coloured pantsuits that I've ever seen in my life oh yeah and then I was like well that is also what I think about because I think about her as particularly bright spark of politics that we've seen mm. in the last couple of years mm-hmm. and not just because she wears bright colors and is sort of vocal about her beliefs but also because she's quite inspiring and i think has inspired quite a lot of people she was the youngest representative um, member of the house of representatives ever i think at yeah 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 so pantsuits and all they represent and all they encompass and then after that uh yacinda arden who is PM of New Zealand. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I do think about her as a leading figure of some, you know, someone who's doing things quite well. Yeah. I don't immediately jump to negative thoughts. Okay, cool. Which is not like me. Um, <laughs> what about you? Yeah, um, I. it's interesting that you've gone for two very contemporary leading female politicians. When I think of, and we'll get onto this more later in the show, I think when I think of the, the direction that politics is heading and the way that the representation of women in politics has changed those are two of the people that i think of as well very much along with um kamala harris and you know that 
there is a shift. But when, honestly, the thing I think of first is Margaret Thatcher or oh. Angela Merkel. Like mm. the kind of the older guard of uh, a more conservative kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of people who, and I'm going to say this very, very heavy layers of irony, ball busters. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that is so often the thing that is associated with women in politics. And as you've proven by what you, the people that you've just thought of, obviously that is not the case, but it's, it's something that I think we have been positioned to think mm-hmm. of in the same way that when you say the word feminist to certain people, there's a certain image they have there as well. No, you're absolutely right. And I think it's important as well. Like when I, when I mentioned the people that I mentioned, part of that is because they are, it's recency biased. Like Mm -hmm. they are recent to me and, Mm -hmm. and thoughts that I've had. And the fact is that they are still written about as unique and trailblazing in a way that, directly compares to the fact that the first thing that most people think of is certainly in the UK. Yeah, I think Margaret Thatcher. And I don't I don't think of Margaret Thatcher first for a number of reasons. Partially because I try not to think about her at all. <laughs> uh yeah, she, she's only not the first thing I think of because a part of me is like, well, it's just so like cliched. Old news. It's tired. It's like being scared of villains with twirly mustaches telling you to train tracks. It's not <laughs> relevant anymore but of course that's also not true like just because she herself is gone does not mean that the archaic and terrible things that she stood for in many ways and the things that she tried to do you know the country is still feeling the after effects and the current political landscape is still very much shaped by the actions of margaret thatcher and lest we forget she was our first female political leader in the uk and one of the first in the west yeah and that is not a good look no well her fame comes more from notoriety almost than from a place of yeah infamy uh it's infamy not fame yeah exactly yeah 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 but that that, that's an interesting point and i i think the thatcher aspect is something that i think she was almost like a model for women in politics, I think, for the early 90s, late 80s, when she first came to power. Mm. And that was what we saw for a long time. And it is only recently that I feel that we've seen the AOCs. We've seen Absolutely. a lot of these people coming into politics that we wouldn't necessarily have expected. Young women, young women, uh, working mothers. Mm. Um, working mothers, I hate that term. Sorry, but women who, like, but people like Yusinda Arden, who was one of the first women to hold political office during a term of pregnancy mm-hmm. that we saw publicly. And we've not really seen that before. So I think it's it's a really interesting time for women in politics now because although things are not perfect, they are very different to the Thatcher era. Yeah. So we're talking about the sort of stereotypes of, of women in politics or political activists who are, are female or femme presenting. What are the words that come to mind when you think of women in politics more than specific figures it's hard to think of a specific word because i'm kind of circling around the types of words but i haven't landed on the exact word that's definitely the one but things like stony or harsh or not militant but like words to that effect generally 
the words that I think that I use to describe people, and again, this, you know, this harks back to the pantsuit thing and the Margaret Thatcher thing, is women trying to make themselves present more like what a man should be in order to be taken seriously. Which in a woman is um, code for crushing of traditional feminine signifiers. Which, trunchbull vibes the trunchbull vibes the, yeah. the thatcher vibes you know like yeah. because it's about not being seen as vulnerable feminine, feminine vulnerable emotional joyful, emotional motherly anything like that yeah. in order to be taken seriously and the, this is all very blanket but historically <laughs> that horrible gross strict it's yeah feeling. the words that you're using are, I find them interesting because they are the words that a lot of people use to talk about feminists. Mm-hmm. And not every female politician is necessarily a feminist in the way that we have talked about previously on this podcast. Absolutely. Um, which is not to say that there is only one, ba- one way to be a feminist, but there have definitely been female politicians in power, mm-hmm. Thatcher, who believed that a woman's place was subservience and she, mm-hmm. she's gone on record saying something like that but then she's been in a position of power herself so Mm -hmm. it's very interesting that the words used to describe women who want to take any kind of power or to agency yeah agency or to assert something the instant thing is yeah masculine or domineering or domineering is the good one yeah and it's it's the idea yeah yeah, it's stony is also a good one um like it's words that are used by the status quo to tear down women in these mediums Mm. be it be it political activists feminist activists or political leaders in order to make it seem in some way unnatural what they are doing and the unnaturalness comes from trying to be something that they're not or being the antithesis of what a woman should be all of this just like so heavily air quoted obviously this is mm-hmm. bollocks and we don't believe but you know yeah. that's that's the perception those are the the types of aggressor words used because uh, you don't get to read about women in these spheres without reading a lot of negative stuff more yeah. so than i think we get for other politicians although not completely frankly because politicians always have someone talking shit about them yeah i think you're right but i think sometimes with the way that people talk about female politicians it is a personal attack on their character well no that's not true because they do it does have my male politicians as well but it's an attack on their on their physical appearance or the way they present themselves in a way that if you were to do that to a male politician everyone would just kind of be like so what what about his policies what about this Mm -hmm. um i mean look at rpm he looks like a fucking tuft of bath drain hair (laughs) but no one's judging the actions he does on that they're judging it because he's a lying piece of shit if a if a female politician in a in a position of leadership turned up in an ill-fitting pantsuit or mm-hmm. with unbrushed hair like she would get absolutely ripped to shreds yes and specifically ripped to shreds and that would be the only and story. that would be it a female politician is going to end up in heat or the sun or something in a way yeah. that um 
Boris. I mean, never will. no one is papping pictures of Keir Starmer in his trunks on the beach, are they? And then being like, "Oh my god, look, look at Keir getting his tan on." No, no one's doing that. But yeah, it's. It, I think all of this is to say that a lot of the discourse around women in politics is built at positioning them in an undesirable way, um, whether that is from their character or their physique or their style or whatever everything is meant to undermine and subvert and it's not a positive discourse at the moment i don't think for the majority of women and the thing that kind of keeps going around in my head is as a woman in politics you are either unnaturally unwomanly or too feminine yeah or you're too sexy be sexless but not too sexless be i mean you can't win as a woman but you can't win you can't win win as a woman in politics well you can win you can win in terms of certain political campaigns because we are going into a year now well we're in a year now almost and i say almost unprecedented because i don't know the actual numbers of female political leaders every year Mm -hmm. throughout history but we do have no i know What what the fuck is wrong with me but we do have a lot of countries electing their first female leaders within the last 12 months some of them include uganda barbados um sweden tunisia yeah so there are a lot of countries now that have female leaders that have never had them before which is exciting it's pretty damn cool yeah Yeah. and yet also it is 2022 yes in short and in long, it's 2022, and yes, there are many countries that are electing their first female That's leader. That's the, yeah. It's very inspiring and hopeful, I think, that we do have this trend upwards. And I think the fantastic work that some of these leading names that we've been hearing about for the last couple of years, especially in, re- in relation and in response to the COVID pandemic, has been, has done wonders for it. But it's still, for me, it's bittersweet because... It's just such a long way to go. Mm. I have some statistics, if I may. These statistics are from the Women in Politics and Public Life uh, report, a research briefing by the UK Parliament. This is about the representation of women in UK politics. There are currently 225 female MPs in the House of Commons at 35%. This is an all-time high. Oh, fuck off. Great. Great. The proportion of women grew slowly until the jump in 1997. Since 1918, (laughs) 559 women have been elected to the House of Commons. So 559 women since 1918, and there are 225 of them now. So half of all women, all female MPs... In the history of... In the history of UK are currently the ones, like this year, 2022. That's mad. That is disgusting, yeah. Um, there are 229 female members of the House of Lords, making 28%. Okay. Six ministers in the current cabinet, brackets 20, 27% are women. The highest proportion of women in the cabinet was 36% between 2006 and 2007. And this is that is in the uh, UK. So 43% of members of the Welsh Parliament are women, along with 45% of the Scottish Parliament, 36% of the Northern Ireland Assembly. Still well under half. And international comparisons... Um, in February 2022, there are 10 women serving as head of state and 14 serving as head of government. At 34%, the UK is in 45th position for the proportion of women in the lower or only House of Parliament as of February 2022. 45. 45th. But what? What? And this is... They're like... 
this is the highest that it's been. Like, well done on beating the bare minimum. Yeah. Well and done. And we've just, we've just scraped 35%. Fucking Which hell. I just think is absolutely batty. And on that note, with uh, gender parity in government, now this is sourced from the womenpoliticalleaders.org Women's World Atlas. Yes. Which appears to have last been updated on the 15th of June last year, so it may now be slightly out of date. Okay. But what it said was that there were four countries that had achieved gender parity between women and men in parliament. They are Rwanda, Cuba, Bolivia, and the United Arab Emirates. That's ridiculous. Four. Four, four. countries. Four. Four countries. Four. And I do know that Germany has a gender balanced cabinet, but that is only the cabinet. It's not the full, you know, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Insane. Yeah. Um, also, um, if anyone was wondering, because I was, there are 195 countries in the world. Fuck off. Not of the number of countries, but like, how is four out of 195? So we are 45th out of 195 countries in the world today, bearing in mind that some of those countries are dictatorships. Absolutely insane. So Um, those are my statistics corner. I enjoyed. uh, Sorry for the super, super depressing statistics, which I can now say apparently. Um, But I just thought that that was all really interesting and I've probably gone way off track, but I thought that was really useful info and also horrifying. It's, we're congratulating ourselves on 35% of our representatives being women. So on the note of, you know, there are only being 35% women, less than 35% women in the UK government, do you think that politics attracts a certain, and I'm going to use this in very heavy air quotes, type of person, and I'm not talking necessarily in terms of gender. What do you think it is that attracts someone to politics? And what do you think makes a person that wants to be a politician? Is it passion? Is it ambition? Is it revenge? I don't know. What do you reckon? <laughs> Definitely revenge. Revenge, for sure. Um, I think that yours is a question with many answers. Um, because <laughs> okay. I think that there are people that are attracted to politics for sort of two or three main reasons. And I think that there are people who succeed in politics and they're not always necessarily the same people or the same reasons. True that. So I do think, you know, you have the idealists who get attracted to uh, politics because they actually want to make change. Unfortunately, I don't think they're always the people that are very successful. Mm -hmm. This is all going to sound terribly, horribly cynical, but you've got the do-gooders, basically, who who want to do good, shocker, Mm -hmm. but who maybe kind of are a little bit too busy focusing on saving turtles to actually get anything done. (laughs) Then you've got the ambitious people who are ambitious for the reasons of you know they want to make the world a better place but they also want to do it whilst um they have a certain level of ego ego yes and and also like gumption and and savviness spunk and moxie spunk and moxie oh it's just so many gross words um (laughs) yeah who savviness is definitely the word i was thinking of though uh who you know they know how to make stuff happen Mm. they have been probably planning this for a long time and you know don't mix with the wrong crowds and Mm -hmm. and pad their cvs and all that sort of stuff these are the kind of people that go after internships and all that sort of stuff the career politicians yes but career with proper intentions and then you've got the hereditary politicians yeah 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 the eatons of the world you know the the, Etonians, the 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 boris the boris etc who do it because they can and because it's expected it's expected because it is one of the it's one of the options of a gentleman Mm. a wealthy person who is above the 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 serfs the (laughs) serfs and the peasants yeah can choose it's none of the things where you actually have to do the work 
And I'm not saying that, you know, many of these people and many people who have a lot of money and do go into things and, and make use of that generational wealth do actually work very hard and that's great for them. But in my humble opinion, not fucking Boris. Hmm. Oh, not fucking Boris. And also we should point out that we are recording this. Uh, we're probably going to look on the back on this and be like, what a time. But we're recording this at a time when Boris is facing questions about his uh, lockdown misdemeanours in the House of Commons as we literally speak. So anyway, I think that's a really good point though. It's it For very few people, I think, or for very few people who make the limelight in politics, is this a vocational thing? Is this a calling? A calling. It should be a calling to serve the people mm-hmm. rather than, oh, well, you know, I went to Eton and I hung out with David Cameron and we both fucked a pig together and here we are, mm-hmm. which allegedly don't sue us. But yeah, there is a lot of that. Yeah. And that this brings me on to something that I wanted to ask you about bring it back to women in politics is i think that this this element of cronyism in certain aspects of certain political parties do you feel that that extends to women in political positions because to me cronyism is a very very male clubby type thing like well yeah of course because if it was women they'd be called cliques right Mm -hmm. right i do think for the most part i agree that it is mostly male like the cronyism is mostly male I think there is still a level of cronyism among all genders at certain in certain establishments, mm. but I definitely think that there is a reason why it's called the old boys club. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be taking one of our patented grape culture breaks in a moment, but before we do, we have some wine to check in on, and it's a cab sav, and I forgot what it's called. Kim, can you tell me, please? Yes, I can. This is the Carmen Stevens Catoria Cabernet Sauvignon off of Naked Wines. It's no wonder it's got a massive C on the front. There's a lot of C's going on in that name. Yes. yes. So Katoria is named is the special label that she gives to her most favourite of the wines that she makes um, because right. it is named after her two daughters, which oh. I believe is Catherine and Victoria. No. So how are you finding it? I've really warmed to it. Okay. Partially because I think it's warmed up in my hand. Okay. Um, I, I think that it is wine that you should let breathe in a decanter if you ever buy it. I, I really like it. It's very easy drinking and the, the crayon element... I feel like mostly it's went subsided, away. Yeah, yeah. I think that is that's why I think it's something that needs to breathe. I'm finding it very warming. It feels like it might be quite a sleepy wine, maybe a bit of a winter wine. Yeah, yeah. I'm quite enjoying it. How about you? Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm loving it. It's making me quite drunk, but that might mm-hmm. also have been the wine before we started the podcast. That's doing that. It is fourteen point five percent. Oh, fuck my mouth. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not the worst road I've ever had. It, it's 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 very middle of the road for me. But again, potentially, I've not given it the benefit of a cleansed palate and the right situation. But it's a bit peppery. Definitely peppery. Yeah, it's fine. Fair enough. Uh, we do have another bottle for after the break. Um, but we are going to have a break now. Go and refresh your glasses, and we'll see you in a few minutes. So we are back from our break. We have a new wine to try and we're going to talk some more about women in politics because we are the best people to do it. Super qualified. Super qualified. Yeah, uh, yeah magnificently qualified. We are, however, more qualified to talk about wine. So, Kim, can you tell us some about the... Some? Tell us some. Tell, tell us some, some things tell us some about things. the second bottle of wine that we have for tonight. I would be happy to. Um, so the second wine we have for tonight is called Le XV du Président. Well, it's called Le 15 du Président. 15 du Président. Uh, yes, I was hoping that you would correct me as to <laughs> how to say that in French. Um, 
Sam chose this one because mostly because it said president in the title, yep. but Literally. also because it harks back a little bit to what we talked about last episode with French wine and political like allegiance to to wine and various things. Mm-hmm. It's also another juicy red, which seems weirdly appropriate for, it feels decadent. for what we're talking about. Yeah, it feels decadent. It feels big. We're talking about quite a big topic. Yeah. So I'm going to give you the taste notes, and then I'm going to give you a little bit more about some other wines that I think is interesting. Basically, that I uh, researched whilst we were trying to decide what we were going to drink. So, les cons du président. In the old village up in the hills, they called it the cons, uh, cans. The 15s. And it was their celebration wine, a uniquely strong, rich wine back in the days when all other wines were weaker. If Fortune smiled and they gave their neighbouring villages a good hammering and the rugby, uh, the rugbyman would light a huge fire by the castle ruins and the whole village might feast on Sivert de Sanglier, washed down and down with this oh-so-innocent-tasting, fruit-juicy but secretly mighty Grenache red, a wine of legend. Now, that feels very... powerful dominating that's the better word uh yeah it definitely feels appropriate i often wash down my victories with a red after smashing some rugbymen i mean it feels very eaten doesn't it yes it does Um, which is interesting because this is french wine and as we also the 15th of the word yeah old money numbers in this is where we're at cheers (laughs) oh that is that is smoother oh god no i hate it no really uh, no, that's harsh. Sorry. Um, <laughs> oh, no. There is a particular kind of fruity, rich, big red fruity. wine yeah. that is really, like, it's quite sweet. sweet and, to me, tastes like house wine in a slightly shabby pub that's been open for a couple of days. <laughs> Very f- no, matter how, no matter how posh it is, it tastes like it's been okay. open for a bit. But that is a very old money taste because old money was all about fortified wine and fortified wine does taste like that sometimes and um, yeah. and that is because it travelled better. So the sweeter the wine, the, the, the better it travels, basically. Mm-hmm. So, makes sense. Oh no. But, gonna let it breathe. Fair enough. Wish I'd reserved some of the Couturier for myself. You got a dribble there. <laughs> got a dribble. <laughs> oh. I'm, glad it, I'm glad we went for this for the second wine. Yes. Let's put it that way. Yeah. There. So I mentioned earlier that I had some more like wine and politics things to talk about. Uh, one of the things that I want to talk about was another wine that I'm not shouting out specifically, uh, but I did want to mention because when I searched wine and politics, I discovered that in October of 2021, there was a right wing wine release in America, mm. the We the People brand. Oh no, I hate it. And so the article starts with overt political stances have traditionally been a no no for wine brands, but that might be changing, which I thought was interesting anyway, mm-hmm. um, given what we're talking about and um, sort of also what we've talked about in the past with, with wine and attitudes to wine. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily true. But certainly it's it's interesting because the article goes on to discuss how certainly in America, winemakers and people who own own vineyards, including Donald Trump, obviously do have quite a bit of political sway and yes. use those funds towards political parties. But this is the most overt that I've ever seen beyond some of the very feminist wines that we've shouted out previously, which is that it's called the We The People brand, featuring a Cabernet Sauvignon Chardonnay, Hit and it hit the market uh, in twenty late twenty 2020, twenty early twenty twenty one. The marketing tagline was "Every sip is another step towards freedom." Drink up. 
god. The wine is, quote, made for patriots. Oh, no. Priced at $30 a bottle. An American brand dedicated to conservative values with a capital C. Made for Americans, by Americans. Unsurprisingly, not available in the UK. American exceptionalism, free markets, free people, free speech, and limited government are what we stand for. And I was just so fascinated by the fact that this exists. Yes. And that we didn't hear about it last year but also this was the article goes on to sort of criticize the 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 timing and everything on it but it also apparently was very closely linked to the storming of the capital last year so i guess it's fair to say that you know not all wine is created equal and that (laughs) for every two woman liberal leaning wine podcast that there is there is a conservative leaning piece of shit wine brand out there (laughs) making probably subpar wine with the tagline about freedom whilst their workers probably work less than minimum wage and they know shit all and it probably tastes like gasoline anyway (laughs) but we don't pressure you into feeling any kind of way to be honest if you've got this far and feel opposite to us i'm surprised you haven't turned us off yet yeah it's not like we're being a super secret but it does actually lead us into i think sam our next point of topic which you like to expand on that yeah so one of the things i wanted to talk about first in this half of the show was that um we've talked a bit about the um the increase female representation in politics do you think that with these different leaders this this very diverse group of women who are in eminent positions in politics do you think we are seeing a shift in the perception of women in politics do you think that is something that is happening do you think that it's something that's that will continue to grow i do think that we are seeing a shift i think that many of the people that we've talked about now are perceived as people, Mm -hmm. women, well-rounded individuals, you know, like multifaceted, and that there is room for those people to be both women and competent, both women and politicians. I think that in the UK, that's still quite slow going. I really do feel like we've had a massive step backwards But I do think that there are standout stars in UK politics that are women. There are also... I was thinking of Dawn Butler. Yes. uh, The first woman to call Boris Johnson a liar, who stood up in the House of Commons, got ejected from the House of Commons for that very reason. uh, And turns out she was fucking right all along. Shocker, we already knew this. So yeah, I do think the perception is changing. I don't necessarily think it's changing fast enough in the UK. I don't really think it's changing fast enough in the US, but we do have a female VP in the US. And I use these two examples because they are the most prevalent in Western media and they are the most slow to change in Western media compared to people that we've already mentioned. What about you? Yeah, I I, I do believe that there is a different... I think the... This is going to sound like a very obvious thing to say, but increasing the number of women in politics in the public eye will obviously increase the diversity of the women you see and i don't necessarily mean that just in terms of uh, race sexuality um, gender identity ability anything like obviously that is all important but you see a different diversity of women who come from 
different political stances. You see women of different ages. You see women um, who present differently, like have different interests, exactly. like different things, do different hobbies. Yeah, like, these things matter. Exactly, and you do move away from this the the Thatcher era de-sexed, de-feminized version of a woman in politics, which is not to say that every woman who is in politics she, she is presenting as hyper-feminine or whatever, but the point is it's not the only thing you see. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is helping to change opinions because you can ask someone about Angela Merkel, you can ask someone about Jacinda Ardern, you, uh, you can ask someone about AOC, you can ask someone about... You can ask someone about all these different women and you can see that this is not just a space in which white women are ex- uh, are accepted this is not just a space in which women from a privileged background are, are accepted it's it's broadening and i think that's really really important mm-hmm. um does it mean that everyone is accepted at the moment no obviously they should be but what i'm saying is that they not are every, not they're not by right the now wider public yeah exactly i mean the uk for example is one of the one of the countries I won't say the only countries, I don't know what the majority is, but there are many countries in the world that have had openly gay, lesbian, LGBTQ plus leaders. We're not one of them. Nope. Um, we have never had a leader of colour. We have had people in in the cabinet, yes, but we've never had a leader in power that's not been white. Yeah. We, as, we as, a, as a country are not great in leading the way in terms of diversity, which, oh, because of colonialism, who knew? Also, it's worth Again, coming back to the thing about the perception of women in politics. And like I said, the diversity is also we are coming to uh, appreciate more, perhaps, the the person for their politics and less for their gender. Mm. And one example of that is the, at the moment, I don't know how this is going to be when this podcast airs, but um, the French pre- presidential elections mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Marine Le Pen and uh, Emmanuel Macron. Mm. Um, obviously, Le Pen is very, very far right. Macron is kind of hovering around the middle. Uh, my gut instinct is to go, a woman, hooray, because I am a woman and she is a woman. But also, when you look at her politics, I'm like, I don't know. No, I don't. That's that's not for me. And so, with that in mind, I would like to ask you: Have you ever noticed your own biases when it comes to political? Uh, leanings, uh, whether it is in terms of gender, like something that goes beyond policy, something that is uh, an unconscious bias, gender, age, race. Have you ever felt anything like that? Absolutely. And it's very important to acknowledge bias in all of my... I have definitely defaulted to... I think my most common one is I've defaulted to this uh, confirmation bias. It's my most common bias. Right. Uh, I've heard people talking about this and therefore that is the one that I will go for. Not right. because I don't blindly follow everyone, but because if I'm umming and ahhing between two things, I will go with uh, the one that is the most familiar to me. Yes. Or, but this is the way that it will go. So you should do this. And I think one of the examples of that is um, the idea of tactical voting. Oh, I was going to ask you about tactical voting. Because so I think that came that tactics. that came up quite a lot um, for the last couple of elections. Yes. And I, I actually still don't really know how I feel about it, if I'm perfectly honest. Because on the one hand, I can, can see the point. On the other hand, I would rather vote 
the way you believe. The way I believe. And for the things that yeah. I want to see. And because I'm so familiar with the idea of statistics and the idea that if you don't have it on record that someone wants that thing, they'll never know and they'll stop trying. Mm. Still don't really know where I fall on that, but I've definitely fallen prey to that kind of biases. What about you? Yeah, I absolutely do believe that there are biases, both conscious and unconscious, that I think about when voting. Um, obviously, I don't. I don't think I've ever voted for someone just because they're a woman. Um, I've definitely enga- engaged in tactical voting mainly because uh, there are certain political parties that I despise, and I did not want mm-hmm. them to continue their their hold in our area and mm-hmm. hey it worked it, um, it, it did <laughs> it work but it is a question but it is a, it is a question because it's like it is that should you vote for what you believe in should you vote for, and if everyone voted for what they believe in what would the outcome be mm. how true is democracy if you if you rig it even not in a voter fraud way yeah. but in a people are deliberately voting to not get something out uh, yeah i don't know mm. um so from the point of view yes but i will honestly say that if i see that a candidate is a woman i am more predisposed to look into her and her politics than i am a slew of white men yeah in a perfect world though it should be about it should be about the policies that the person is standing for not who that person is and that's generally the line that i think that we all try to fight for and i think even tactic voting does walk that line where it's the policy yeah. that this person does not stand for. Yeah. So to bring it back to a more granular level then, um, who is a woman or who are women in politics now, actively now, that you admire? I think you might have mentioned a couple of them earlier. I did mention a couple of them earlier. Um, and I I caveat this with, I, I'm not familiar with the ins and outs of any of the people that I've mentioned policies. Yes. I admire AOC and Yacinda Arden because it seems to me that they are doing great things and they are being vocal and unapologetically themselves in what everything that they do. And I admire that. And I admire people even if I don't necessarily agree with them. And I think that that's quite important to do because... Hmm to survive in a political landscape you can disagree with someone but you can also think that they're doing a good job yeah um i don't know if i disagree or not because i'm not you know combing their manifestos every time every (laughs) chance i get perhaps i should be but i am not a political pundit and i am also trying to live my life um i also as mentioned admired dawn butler for the stand that she took which i thought was it was brought to my attention again today, like I'd sort of forgotten about it, but um, it is admirable and it is poignant, especially, as we said, at the moment with our PM, the aforementioned Boris Johnson, facing several allegations of being an absolute twant face. Official, and that's on the paperwork. she fucking called it, so there's that. Yeah. I, How about you? No, I, I agree, and they were they were actually two of the people that I wrote down um, when I wrote this question because i was like aoc is she's an incredible young woman she's um latinx from queens she is the youngest like i said um youngest member of the house of representatives as a woman from an underrepresented background i think she's great 
I think she's also very engaging, which is very important in politics. And like you, you mentioned earlier, charisma. Mm-hmm. She's got that. Um, Yacinda I know less about, but I know that she led one of the most effective COVID preventative... Um, what's the word? Systems, I suppose. Um, during the pandemic, she was very decisive. Um, again, like you, I don't know much about their politics. But there's there are various people that I think have... a. F- <laughs> a finger in politics that aren't necessarily leaders. Um, and this is going to sound, oh, this is going to sound lazy, I think, if I say this, but Michelle Obama is mm-hmm. an active um, political advocate. I think that's very important. I think, you know, we, we have, as you mentioned earlier, we've been primarily talking about people in office. Yeah. But actually some of the most impressive and interesting women in politics yes. are not in office. And that is a problem, because they should be. But also sometimes there are reasons why they are not. For example, um, Greta Thunberg. Yes. Yeah. Is not in office because she's a child. Well, actually, well, now she's, she's, she's now like, in a, she could run for office now. Now she's a young woman. But at the time that she became Greta with a capital G, she yeah. was a child. Yeah. Uh, it's also true. Malala. Malala. Um, and Michelle Obama is on record from saying that she's she's not interested in holding political yeah. office, but she recognises the importance of the political office that is the wife of the President of the United States and also the wife of the former President of the United States. Mm, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. That's... So just before we wrap up for today... Um, was there something that you learned in the course of researching this episode that really, really stuck out to you? Uh, I say that in was very special episode kind of tones. But, um, <laughs> I think that both of us, well, you more than I, I think, did a lot of digging into the stats of women in politics. Was there something that really, really struck you? She's so kind with her. Like, you did work too, uh, oh, which um, Sam did plenty of research and most of the research on this episode and did plenty of drinking research is that what counts yeah Yeah. baby um i gave out most of my stats Mm. i have to say um because genuinely the uh women in politics and public life briefing that i read out earlier was the most shocking and interesting thing to me yeah um because i knew that we were doing pretty shitty but I didn't realise that we were celebrating how shitty we were doing. <laughs> um, yes, fair enough. How about you? Yeah, I think this has been an eye-opening podcast um, because, for similar reasons you've just said, um, but I also had not really realised the the low benchmark that we'd set ourselves. <laughs> when you were like, oh, 30% of... Oh, I, I can't remember the actual statistic. That's fine. 35% of... Um, MPs. MP. Thank you. Uh, of MPs in the UK. Uh, not even in the UK. Like in Eng- in the Brit- in the English so parliament. So 35% of MPs in the UK are women. And that's now, including currently. Scotland and that is Nicola Sturgeon. United right, okay, Kingdom. fine. Yes. Okay, fine. So the, um, devolved... we haven't even mentioned Nicola Sturgeon, the yeah. only female <laughs> um, leading member of any par- like country-specific parliament in the uk yeah um, the devolved parliaments are slightly more 
varied, but they yes. are all around that 35 to 45 yeah. percentage, yeah. which is still shit. Yes. So the fact that you were like 35% and I went, oh, that's not that bad. And I was like, no, it's, it's still bad. <laughs> um, the fact that my bar has been set so low that if you'd said like 25%, I would have been like, oh, okay. Okay. And I'm like, no, that's not okay. <laughs> I think it's I would have been okay. impressed over anything over nineteen percent. Yeah, which yeah, and then immediately like yeah. oh, yeah. yeah, like we've been conditioned to ask for not very much. Mm, the bar is low. The bar is fucking low. Uh, so that's what surprised me more than anything else, um, and that's very obviously very UK centric. But um, like you say, the fact that we are seeing more female leaders not just in northern hemisphere countries and southern hemisphere countries in countries that have a different predominant religion in different that you know it it's encouraging it's not necessarily comforting you know that's a very good way to put it yes. yeah like there's yeah. growth but it's not out of the woods yet, and we've mm-hmm. got to con- we've got to continue to do that, and we've got to continue to talk to our younger women. Um, but we do have to talk to people about politics and make it, and we have to keep continuing seeing these women in the public eye who offer new avenues of hope and offer new avenues of um, inclusion. I completely agree. Yes. So <laughs> on that note, I think we're going to wrap up the episode. But before we you know say goodbye we have to talk about the wines that we've had today and the first one that we had was the Cattoria Cabernet Sauvignon so Kim what did you think about that I uh really enjoyed it by the end of it um and that might again be a slight bias of nostalgia bias is that a thing I don't know (laughs) but it is because uh I liked it more than the second one um I yeah no I really enjoyed it I thought that it it definitely did start off harsh yeah, it was um, quite a tacky on the face. It needs to breathe. And if you're anything like us, a wine that needs to breathe is not a general <laughs> buy. Because, you know, we are... Guzzle. We are buy, open, poor kind of people. That being said, like, I think if, if you know that going in, you, you can be prepared. I would give it a 3.5. Mm-hmm. I think that it was really, really drinkable. Nicer than your average, but it's not like a showstopper. And also, um, pricing-wise, it was thirteen ninety nine. Um, um, okay. From okay. from Naked Wines, nineteen ninety nine market price, which even for a very good bottle of wine is asking a lot from me for the level that I think this one is, which I think is it is a uh, it's not plonk, but it's it's. It's not. It's nothing special. I don't. I can't think of a meal that I would pair it with, yeah. and that is the main reason that I would choose to buy a wine um, at a high price. I would either be pairing it with meal, or I would be um, serving it as a, a showstopper in its own right, which I don't necessarily feel like this falls to. Which is why I've said three point five. How about you? Two point five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it was like. On the previous episode, you talked about how your rating is weighted for for white yes. wine. Um, my rating is weighted for red wine. Um, this is a this is what I expect to be given when I'm given red wine. Um, 
which is not necessarily something I'm looking forward to. I thought it was quite a tacky on my face, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which is to say it was quite sharp. It was quite abrasive on the tongue, actually, after the first glass. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of mellowed a bit, but I still would never like this won't stand out in my mind as something that as a red wine that I would recommend. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. So 2.5. Um, how do you feel about Le Corn's du Président? After the first one, I thought it was easier drinking and then it went on and I went, no, I don't like it. So I'm going to go for a 2.5 as well because they were both... I'm actually, do you know what? I'm going to go both for a 2 because they were... in. They, they were the same level of enjoyable but a different point in the drinking. Yes, um, that makes sense. Yeah, so 2 for both of them. Fair. Um, I'm not quite so harsh. Fair. Uh, but I sort of am. Okay. I I'm hovering around two point five two for Le Corn's Bourjolant. Considering that when I poured it, I went, "Ugh, I hate it." Not always a good sign. No, no. As your great culture resident red wine drinker, yeah. Not my favorite, but and I love a big, I love a big red, but it felt. Too sweet, too sugary, a little mm. bit like it gone over, mm. but it, it hasn't. Like to be clear, this isn't a wine that has gone off. I know the taste of a wine that has gone off, um, and it is a corked wine, so there is always that risk of that when we're ordering these. This is not one of those. It is just a very sweet old vine, old world wine. Yeah, it mellowed out a little bit for me yeah. whilst I was drinking it, but I'm still when I sip it, having a bit of a moment of like, I'm not sure about this. I can feel it growing a headache. It's making my teeth feel It does very... taste like headache. Yeah, it makes my teeth and tongue feel very fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not, I, it's not that I'm not necessarily enjoying because I am still drinking it, which is a, a far cry from um, some wines that we've had, including some red wines that we've had. Mm-hmm. But I, if I was served this in a dinner or a pub, I would not be happy and I would probably just back. about send it back. Just about. For twelve ninety nine. Yes. Which is its market price. Yeah. Off of Google. I would be livid. Yeah. Um so I'm gonna give it a two. Mm-hmm. That's fair. So um much like politics, our wines are not winning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're Our wines real... are over-promising and under-delivering. Yes, and room for improvement. Yeah. Um, I, we're obviously not going to rate politics because... <laughs> because uh, how many numbers can you go below zero? Um, <laughs> but yeah. Yes. No. Um, minus 35%. Um, <laughs> but I hope that you've enjoyed listening to this episode. If yes. you have any thoughts and feelings, please do drop us a line. Sam's going to tell you where to do that. Yes, you can uh, follow us on various social media accounts, by which I mean two. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Grape Culture Pod. We're on Instagram at Grape Culture Podcast. Or you can go to our website and drop us a line via the contact form. And the website is grapeculturepodcast.co.uk. You can also follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts if you are in the mood for some grape culture in your life every two weeks. And that is the end of the episode for this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new show for you. Um, We also have a very exciting show coming up. If you like talking about women in power, you should 
definitely follow us because we're going to be talking all about queens. Queens, baby. So do follow us and we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.